Welcome to Landmark Worship Center's audio podcast. We hope that this message will inspire and encourage your life. So open your heart and mind and receive what God has for you today. Talking in our, our study uh, about the, really the only true cure-all that there is in our world. And our world needs, it needs to be cured. It's got a lot of problems. It's really sick. But we have a God who is able to bring that cure. And we've been talking about this concept of love and how that love is that cure-all for the ailments of our world. And if our world could become filled with love, it would solve every problem in it. Every single problem would be solved. Thank God for that. So we want to continue on our study on this topic of love. And we're going to do that by looking in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We talked about the first three verses of that the last time. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to begin with verse number 4 today. And we're going to read down through verse number 7. What a great, great chapter this chapter is. Thank God that uh, God was able to provide something for us to help to instruct us and lead us in a greater understanding of what love is. Beginning with verse number 4, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's a pretty powerful combination of things that love does for us. And we're going to take those and try to break them down and look at them one at a time here as we're going through this study today. In this segment uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul tries to begin to show us the inner workings that are the composite that makes up love. All the different component parts that are included in this thing called love that uh, God wants us to know. And again, as we, as we look at these component parts and as we examine what's included in them, it's also giving us a picture of God. It's showing us what God is made of. It's teaching us and helping us to better understand what God's like and how incredible he truly is toward us. When Paul had been Saul, the persecutor, He had been blind to the perfect love which God was demonstrating to all of humanity through this power of liberty that we experience through salvation. And thank God that we know that salvation today. But Paul, or Saul, had been blinded to that. As Saul, his eyes had become overclouded with the darkness of hate 
which he had tried to disguise in his mind as acts of justice on his part. He believed in his mind that what he was doing was being justified by his actions in trying to fight for the things of God. And all the time he was wrong. And what had blinded him was this hatred. This hatred for those things which had shook his world. Those things which had said that this religion that you are in right now wasn't really what God had intended to be completed until Jesus came. And that Jesus was the completion of that. And he couldn't buy that. And it made him, it, it, it built a hatred in his heart toward this. And so he was moved by hatred, though he thought he was doing justice, though he thought in his mind that what he was doing was right. And it's so easy for us sometimes, if we're not careful, we can be caught up in that same thing. We can think we're doing right. We can think that we are on the right track and yet be just as wrong as we can be. And this was where Saul was at at this time in his life. Saul had come to see himself as that vessel of justice that God was going to use for striking out against these usurpers of truth who were claiming that the old covenant of the law had been phased out and replaced by that experience that those rebels had received on that day of Pentecost in the upper room in Jerusalem. That way of thinking for Paul had begun to change when he was on his way to Damascus and he was going to go there to further persecute this group, this upstart group who'd begun in Jerusalem and trying to spread this falsehood, is what he's thinking, all around the world. He's got to stamp this stuff out. So he's on his way to Damascus to do that. But on the, in the process of him going there, he was struck blind by a bright light that outshone the sun that day. And then informed by the very voice of Jesus speaking out from heaven what he needed to do in order to regain his sight. And God wasn't just talking to him about his physical sight. He was going to give him a new sight as well as his physical sight. Just as that voice on the road had told him when Ananias had laid his hand upon him, Saul's blind condition was instantly and miraculously cured. Because not only did Saul receive his physical sight that day, but we're told that he also received the Holy Ghost and began to see the true light of God's great love for the first time in his life. That hatred that had been a part of him, that hatred that had motivated him, that had moved him, that day that hatred died. What a powerful God. All this hatred that's in the world today, all this hatred that's going on in the Middle East today, that's been going on for thousands of years, hatred, in one moment of time God can wipe it away you think love is not powerful folks what wiped out that hatred in the heart of Saul it was the love of God men have tried to, to work out their differences in, for 
thousands of years, and yet it's still a very vital part of their lives today. And yet, if they're brought into the presence of love and exposed to the power of it, that hatred can be gone in a moment. Love is powerful, folks. Love is mighty. Love is strong. So while the old Saul would have had no idea of how to describe love, it wasn't Saul, the one who was blinded by hate, who wrote 1 Corinthians 13. It was Paul, the converted persecutor, who had had this hatred removed from him and been introduced to love, who now could see clearly and could inform us about what love is all about because he knew it. He experienced it. And he's going to tell us from his viewpoint what love is all about. Paul could be said to be truly a fulfillment of the scripture that the prophet Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah 9 Chapter 9 and verse number 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And buddy Saul had been walking in a great darkness. But when he saw the light, it changed his world. It changed everything in his life. And I thank God for the day that I saw the light, the song says. I saw the light. You're here today because you saw the light. And I'm telling you, that light was powerful, wasn't it? it? It changed us. And thank God I needed changing. But it changed me. And it will change those who see it. Saul saw it. After having walked in darkness, now he begins to walk in light. So Paul begins his explanation of love by directing us to consider one of the points about love that was probably very puzzling at first uh, to him because uh, when Paul had first experienced this experience with God, we know that Saul had been a Pharisee. And they didn't walk in this light, did they? There were a lot of problems that they had, and it had, it had affected this life of Saul. And so, Paul, when he begins to try to explain this experience of love, he's doing so from the vantage point of what he used to be and what he's now become. Paul states in verse number four that love suffereth long and is kind. And that was very hard for him to understand because, you see, whenever he was Saul, the persecutor, the last thing that he was was a long-sufferer or kind. He had no time for you. His patience uh, was very thin. That wasn't the Saul of old. But now this is the different man. This is Paul talking about this concept of love that he's been exposed to. So let's talk about this first point of love suffering long and love is kind. Paul tells us that love has the ability to take a great deal of abuse without being changed. Now you and I know that 
this world can dish out a lot of abuse. There are a lot of things that are going to happen in life that are not going to be fun, exciting, or pleasant. A lot of battles are going to have to be fought. And in the midst of all of these things, it has a tendency to change us, and not for the good. Life can mess us up. Life can twist us about. But Paul tells us that when love becomes involved in our life, it has the ability to take this abuse without changing. When he had been Saul the persecutor, he dished out a hailstorm of pain and destruction against the church. He'd been filled with vengeance and, and greatly misguided zeal. And yet Jesus had endured that continual persecution against his sheep until the time had been right to confront Saul. Saul had single-handedly been the devil's greatest device to be used against the church. And yet, Jesus had allowed this persecution until the time was right. The time was right. Why had he done that? Because, you see, Jesus had filled his church, the people in his church, with what? Love. He knew the church could endure the punishment. He knew the church could withstand the persecution because he had filled them with love. And love suffers long. And he knew the church could stand it, but he was after one man. He was after Saul. And when the time was right in Saul's heart, God came to him. And when Jesus came to Saul, Saul was blown away. Because this Jesus, whom he had persecuted so severely, had not come to him with an attitude of an eye for an eye. Saul, you've been dishing out hatred and vengeance against my people and me, and now, buddy, it's your turn to be on the receiving end. That's what Saul would have done. You dish it out to me, I'm going to dish it out to you tenfold, buddy. That was his attitude. That was his thinking. And yet when he comes across this God that's been revealed to him, he's blown away because it's not an eye for an eye. What does he see? It wasn't punishment, but it was an introduction to a higher principle. One that was based upon graciousness and being kindly affectioned to those who had been abusive. He'd never experienced that before. What a transformation. What a change. What a mindset that would have to be altered. Paul had found that the reason that love waits patiently during its being abused 
wasn't to plan out a strategy for executing some measure of revenge. It's not just waiting until it gets its turn to start throwing some punches. That's not love. It doesn't lay in wait to settle a score. Not at all. Love waits in the hope of there being a reconciliation. That there can be found the possibility for the repairing of the rift that's caused this separation and led to the abusive behavior in the beginning. Love is all about extending the olive branch of peace to those who don't deserve it. And Saul did not deserve it. And neither did we. It's making a conscious choice not to repay evil with evil, but to repay evil with good. And if you're Saul, try to wrap your head around that. This is a whole new concept to him. It was a whole new concept to us when we stepped into the power of love. Paul goes on in verse number 4 by stating that, that love is devoid of one of the most human of characteristics, envy. Envy. Our world today is full of envy. Envy is the attitude that results when someone attains an advantage in life that we haven't gotten to partake in. Somebody else gets to experience something that we, we wanted to experience, but we don't get to. Then envy sets in. It could be a co-worker who gets a raise, but we didn't. Or maybe it's someone who gets a promotion of some sort, and we felt we were more qualified to receive it, and yet we were not considered. Maybe you were part of a group, uh, a group project, but once the project was completed and, and everything was done and, and it was a success, only one person was singled out to receive the praise for it, and it wasn't you. That happens, folks, don't it? That happens. The thing about envy is that it creates a strong desire within the heart of the one who believes he was slighted to possess that very thing of which he or she was denied. Paul was familiar with envy. He knew what envy was like. Because he'd had it in his heart. But Paul said that one who's under the influence of love is not bothered by the attitude of envy. In fact, love is fine when others are blessed, and it isn't. It takes no offense when it's not included in recognition or advancement. Love will be found congratulating and honoring and being truly happy for the one who is being blessed. That is not human. <laughs> That's not the way we operate. Yeah, we might clap our hands, and, but inside we're boiling. That should have been me up there. That should have been me getting the promotion. That should have been me getting the praise. That should have been me, 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 me. That's what we experience. But something happens when love becomes a part of our life. 
We don't look at it like that anymore. We are happy for them because they're being blessed. Love changes everything in our life. This would have been a great uh, revelation, a tough revelation on the part of Paul. Paul, when he was Saul, had been a Pharisee, and there was plenty of envy to go around among the Pharisees. Because to them, it was all about receiving recognition. And it was all about the advancement to places of higher glory for the Pharisee. And Saul had been caught up in that. And yet here, whenever love becomes a part of his life, it's totally the opposite. You're not seeking glory. You're not looking to be glorified, uplifted, advanced. You're happy where you are. I have learned to be content wherever I am. That's not Saul talking. That's this new Paul who's got the love of God in his heart talking. Position doesn't matter to him anymore. When it was everything before, love changes everything. Next in that same verse, Paul tells us that love in its highest form does not vaunt itself and is not puffed up. Once again, as a Pharisee, Paul had been caught up in that practice of, of putting themselves on display as a show of their own self-righteousness. Boasting to the sinful masses of their piety and of their purity while all of the while they were filled with disdain and even hatred for the sinners the very ones who God had put them in position to help. They hated them. They couldn't stand to be around sinners. They were repulsed by them. Wasn't the way it was supposed to be, but that's what it had become. How easy it is for us to judge ourselves by comparing ourselves to others who we see as weaklings and failures. You know, when we do comparisons about where we are in our standings, we'll never choose somebody that's doing really good. We'll never choose somebody who's doing better than we are. When we're sizing ourselves up, we're going to find somebody who's less than we are. In our thinking, they're less than we are. And that's who we're going to judge ourselves by. make ourselves look better so that we can accept who we are right now. And that's where Saul had been judging himself on the basis of others. That's very misleading. But Paul would here remind us that the standard for our comparison is not one another, but it's Jesus. You've got to compare yourself against the ultimate example to find out where you really are in the scheme of things. And the only one that you can do that with is Jesus. He is the supreme example of love and action. And where we stand 
next to him shows the true picture of where we are. It was the way that Jesus had lived among us that has showed us the way. And that way was the way of humility. Love does not do what it does in life for the recognition of others. It doesn't show off. It's not out there to seek to draw attention to itself by its actions. Love doesn't have to sing its own praises or toot its own horn. Love does not consider itself worthy of more esteem than others because it isn't arrogant, it isn't egotistical, and it isn't prideful. It simply isn't hung up on itself. And yet it's precisely because of this unassuming characteristic of love that when it's discovered by those who are in need, guess what? The word's going to get out just as it did with Jesus. Jesus showed people love like they had never known it before. He didn't, he didn't go out and, and hire a campaign manager, put up flyers, tell them Jesus is coming to town and you know he's going to do some miracles. He didn't have to do any of that. He was humble, unassuming, and yet everywhere he went, the word had already gotten out. You don't want to miss this guy. There's something special about him. And when love is in action in our lives, you don't have to broadcast it. People will be drawn to it like a magnet. That's the beauty of love. Praise God. And that's why when you come to know God, you are drawn to him. And that's why our world's in such a mess today, because they don't know him. And we've got to change that situation in life. Then in verse 5, Paul declares that love does not behave in a rude manner. Anybody ever been around somebody that's rude? Do you, do you like being around rude people? They kind of grate on you, don't they? They're just, ugh. They're not comfortable being around. That, that was just rude. Making comments, not having any filter, whatever, com whatever comes in their brain, they just blurt it out. There's no filter there. They, they don't care what it sounds like. They don't care who they, who they hurt. It's just whatever's in them, it just goes out. That's rude. That's just being rude. But love is not that way. Rude people are not people who love. When Paul had been Saul, he had done the very opposite of love in this area. He didn't care about the feelings of others. It didn't bother him how the actions that he would make upon, would take upon the lives of the people that he was throwing into prison, how it was going to affect their lives. He didn't care about that. That wasn't important to him. It didn't matter. It didn't matter what he called him. It didn't matter what he said about him. It didn't matter where he was when he was talking to him. He didn't care. He was rude. 
Paul tells us here that love is never okay with showing disrespect toward others. When Jesus was called before the Sanhedrin and put on trial, and he was, he was being abused by those very uh, re supposedly religious people, what did he do? He still showed them respect. And he was really the one that should have been respected by them. They showed him no respect, and yet he still showed them respect. Because that's love. Love seeks always to be considerate of others. Love will never seek to cause someone else embarrassment by pointing out the mistakes or their shortcomings that they might have. And we all do. But when love is involved, they'll never do that in, an, in, in the presence of others. They may take you aside and talk to you personally, which is the way it should be done. But they're never going to call you out in public to embarrass you. Love doesn't operate that way. Love will avoid putting people on the spot in order to make them look bad. It doesn't degrade others or seek to put them down by open confrontation in front of a crowd. But isn't that exactly what the religious leaders had constantly sought to do to Jesus? They were going to trip him up in front of the crowds that he had gathered. They were going to show the people what this Jesus was really all about. Jesus never sought to do that to them. He would uh, give it back to them, but he was never the instigator of that. They were always the ones that pushed the button. If you want to open that door, Jesus said, I'll step into that, but I'm not going to be the one that opens it up. You're just showing who you are. Love never does that. Paul had actually been guilty of this very act when uh, he, had, uh, he had already been converted, and yet he confronted Peter in the city of Antioch, and this is in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, and you can read that. But it's, it's the story about uh, a situation that had arisen where Peter, uh, whenever uh, the Jewish part of this, of the church, had uh, not been around, then Peter would go and he would eat with the Gentiles. But if his Jewish brothers were there, he would only go and eat with the Jewish brethren. He would diss the Gentiles as though they were lesser. Paul sees this, and Paul confronts him in front of everybody. This is Peter. This is the guy who's got the keys. This is the guy that Jesus says, you're going to open the door for everybody, dude. And Paul has no qualms about calling him out in front of everybody. 
That's not love. That day, Paul was not operating in love. He could have taken Peter aside and said, Brother Peter, I need to point something out to you. What you're doing here is not right. There are ways that you can deal with situations and confrontation in front of others in a crowd to bring embarrassment is never okay if love is involved. That old spirit of Saul rose up in Paul that day. What Paul said was the truth. Peter was wrong in what he was doing. But Paul writes to us in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 15 and 16 and he tells us the truth must always be seasoned with love. You know you can kill people like that. You can give people truth, but you can hammer it and kill them with it. It's not intended to be used as a weapon. We don't use the spirit of truth to kill people. We're supposed to be bringing them to, to life, not killing them. That's why we've got to speak with love. And if, you don't, if your love's not operating one day, then you better be careful what you're saying because you could do some definite harm to people's lives. We need to be operating in love always, especially when we're dealing with other people because we're talking about people's lives and their eternities. God help us to season everything we say and do with love. Paul continues on in verse number 5 as he tells us that love does not seek her own. Paul wants us to know that love is unselfish because it doesn't operate in the presence of those who love in return. It's not just about loving other people that love us. What he wants us to understand is that love is able to go, is, is able to do good even to those who are haters. It's able to continue to love even those who share little, if any, of love's attributes. It doesn't wait until someone changes from being unlovable in our thinking to becoming someone who is loving before it goes into action. That's not love. Love's able to give up its own rights. It's willing to sacrifice its own desires when doing so just for the possibility that something good can come from that act from, for someone else. I've got to hurry on here. Paul continues by sharing with us another attribute of this highest level of love. He says that love is not easily provoked. Have you ever heard the phrase that they walk around with a chip on their shoulder? Yeah, this person walks around with a chip on their shoulder. Watch, watch it. Be careful around them because they've got this chip on their shoulder. That phrase came from an old custom that involved an act of a challenge being offered from one man to another. And as a part of this challenge, the one who was offering this challenge to someone else would put either a little stick or a, or a chip of wood on his shoulder. And he would dare the one he was challenging to come over and knock it off. 
And if the other one came over and knocked it off, that was, I accept your challenge, dude. Love doesn't go around with a chip on its shoulder just waiting for somebody to knock it off so it can do something to them. That's not love. It doesn't have a chip on its shoulder. Love doesn't walk around with, with this attitude of just, I'm waiting for someone to just start a fight with me today. That's not love. Love is not confrontational. It isn't in your face. Paul says that love is very difficult to offend. You have to try super extra hard to just get it riled up a little. Love is very even-tempered. And as such, on, rare, when, on those rare occasions, love can lose its temper. But it's a rare occasion when that's possible. Love is good-natured. And it's able to take excessive amounts of abuse before having had enough. But even when it's finally reached its tipping point, love is still able to be reasoned with. It doesn't fly into a blind rage ready to destroy everything around it. In, in the story in Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 through 14, it's where Moses is talking to God who's ready to strike, who's ready to kill all the people because they're they are just being ridiculous. They are stiff-necked. They're stubborn. They're, they're unwilling to just yield to him. And, and God says, I'm done with this. I'm finished. I'm tired of dealing with them. I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. But what happens? God allows Moses to talk him out of it. And that's love. Even when love gets to that point where I've had enough, if someone comes along, you're willing to listen to them. Talk me out of this, please. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be like this. And love will listen to reason. Paul continues on in verse 5, and he tells us that love thinks no evil. Love isn't something in us that causes us to always be on guard around others. It isn't our having the gift of suspicion, as though that were a gift. Where we're always approaching others in a way that they come off as being suspect by us. For, you know, probably they've done something or, or said something to someone and it's harmed them. So I'm going to be on guard. You don't know. You've never met him before. Yeah, but I'm going to, you know, you never know. So I'm going to be on guard because I suspect something's going on here. My gift of suspicion is going off. So it doesn't take everything that people say and do and then convince itself that somehow contained within all of those actions, it's actually an attempt on their part to intentionally create harm or purposely hurt or abuse us or others around us. It's exactly the opposite. Paul's telling us that love has a standard by which it approaches the way that it evaluates the actions of others. And that standard is that it will always seek to see the good in others first. Our natural tendency is the opposite of the one being expressed by love. We can't help ourselves. We, uh, we gravitate towards seeing the bad in other people around us. And that's probably because it's so much easier to find, isn't it? it? We don't have to look hard at one another to find something bad. It's just easier for us to do that. But love isn't looking for the easier path when it comes to sizing others up. Instead, it's always standing ready to believe the best in others. It looks for the good. It sees the glass of life as being way more full than empty. Love will always find a way to give the benefit of the doubt to the one who's being brought into 
questionable life. When Paul was still Saul at heart, you were guilty in his eyes. Once he had targeted you, and you could have even provided him proof otherwise, and it wouldn't have mattered to him. You were guilty, and that was it. He'd already judged you. You were guilty. And there was nothing you were going to do to convince him otherwise. Thank God that the God we serve is not that way. Or none of us would be here today. That's not God. Next, Paul reveals to us that the real deal that is love rejoices not in iniquity, but rather rejoices in the truth. Love just finds it impossible to get excited when the faults of others are being exposed. Love is uncomfortable being in the company of gossip mongers. Love is not a supporter of wrong. It isn't a fan of wickedness. In fact, love is heartbroken when wrongs are committed and wickedness is perpetrated against those who are innocent. It bothers love. Whenever love comes to light and right is revealed, love breaks out in rejoicing. That's because as far as love is concerned, honesty and truthfulness isn't the best policy. It's the only policy worth employing in our lives. Paul continues on his role, and he just keeps going as he tells us that love has the ability to bear all things. And that word bear is translated from the Greek word stego, and it means to cover with silence. The implication of that here in this verse has the meaning of enduring patiently. And I get the image of love becoming like a mantle for us, one that's capable of sustaining us for however long that need for its services uh, is, is required. Love enables us to endure even the, through the extreme rough patches. And every one of us knows what that's about. Those situations that we go through that seem to be uh, monstrous, full-blown catastrophes. But I get the feeling that this love that Paul's describing here isn't just a mantle that's to be used for ourselves. But he speaks here of our having this mantle of love that's also capable of coming alongside others who are struggling with their own deep and troubling circumstances. And then expanding our mantle over them to help cover them and protect them. This mantle of love doesn't cut and run when the going gets really difficult. Instead, it remains that steadfast and calm agent of reassurance, reassurance that we can go the distance no matter how far that has to be. Next, Paul says that love believes all things. That word, pistuo, is the Greek word used here, and it has the meaning to entrust or to commit. Paul's telling us that love will help us to entrust and to commit ourselves to all things that are godly. And by doing so, it helps us to remain upbeat and positive even when we're faced with a formidable force of opposition. It refuses to accept the possibility of defeat. It is steadfast, dug in, stubborn in the good that it seeks to provide for others. He relates to us that love hopes all things. Love is confident and full of trust. It sets its sights on a future experience and then fills it with an expectation for the fulfillment of that experience and doing so with complete confidence. It might be at times an expectation that's held on onto without any physical basis for anticipating its fulfillment, but that doesn't matter to love. 
Because love never loses hope. It always holds on to the trust that the thing that we've hoped for is on its way. Love is filled with confident hope. Love also endures all things. It remains firm and steadfast in its purpose for good. Even in times when great pressure is being exerted as in times of trials and testings. And we're familiar with that. Love finds a way to persevere through the suffering and the experiences of life's misfortune without yielding any ground or considering giving up. Love is tenacious. Suffering and hardship can have the ability to alter some of the qualities that we may possess, but one of those qualities will never be love. It will never change love. I hope that we can begin to see and understand that this revelation of love that's being described by Paul to us is not some silly, weak-kneed emotion that's as changeable as the weather. It's something that's empowering to those who possess it. You know, it's often said that the opposite of love is hate. But I've come to believe that the opposite of love is actually apathy. And I say that because the way that Paul describes this word love to us, it's intended to be a verb. It's intended to be a, a description of action. And apathy is inaction because it just doesn't care. What was it that Jesus came to teach us all? Do good to those who hate you, even pray good things for them. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. Be ready to forgive others' trespasses against us without keeping record of how often that might be required. Jesus told us that he is the light of the world. And I want you to think of Jesus as being like a clear prism. And what happens when you pass light through a clear prism? You get to see the rainbow. And all it is is just taking that light and breaking it apart into all its component parts so that you can see those things. And that's the way Jesus was. He was that clear prism and God passed his love through him and it came out divided into all of its different parts, its component parts. And we saw those in the actions that Jesus displayed for all of us to see. It was that full spectrum of light from the Spirit of God that was broken apart so that we could see it. But before he was crucified, Jesus told his followers that they were to be the light of the world. They became that light on the day of Pentecost, and that light is still shining today. And if our world is ever to be exposed to all of the points that make love what it's supposed to be, guess what? It has to begin here with us so that it can spread out there to them. If we want to really be alive, then we have to learn how to love deeply and lavish it upon all those around us. And I want to end this study by asking all of us this question. What kind of a world would this world be if everyone in it was just like me? Hopefully it wouldn't be a bad thing. But I want us to pray today that God would help us to be saturated with his love. Let's pray. Dear God, today help us. Help us to understand.